Hello again. It's that time of the month where the assistant pastors will be taking the time uh, to preach on that final or fourth Sunday. So, in me returning, we will continue our series where we were discussing understanding about our faith and the tests that should come with it. I entitled it, Test to see that you are in the faith, lest you fail the test. Subtitle to the Christian faithful, your faith in Christ will always be tested, and this should be accepted. But the question remains, who is testing your faith? Our scripture text, again, with the correction, 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make certain about your calling and choice or his calling and choice of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Verse 11. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Shall I look to the Lord our God now in prayer? Father, we thank you for this Saturday that you've given us, Lord. We thank you that you allow us to be mindful of the word that's being preached and what has already been taught by the Catechism, Lord. May this word be an opening eyes to show that you are continually with your people. And be with your servant today as he provides this word, so that I be an edification and nourishment to their souls. It's in Christ's most holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So, by this second sermon, in the first sermon, just to give you a brief summarization of it, we went through the foundation about what should be founding to your faith. And that approach, I took exactly the same way that Apostle Paul did. It should be in Christ and the work that Christ did by resurrecting from the dead on the third day. This is non-negotiable. You must believe and not to believe it will be not only detrimental to your faith, but in your discussions and with others, you will then spew lies and heresies, and you don't want to find out what happens to you when you go down that pathway. But nonetheless, if you came to the understanding that Jesus Christ is the foundation. Then, this is no affront to you when I say, and I concluded my last sermon with Matthew 24 through 27 with the words of the Messiah himself. If everyone hears these words of mine and acts on them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house. And yet, the house did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, and does not act on them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against the house. And the house fell, and the collapse was great. So it's with this, 
I brought in close the first sermon so that you will see and understand the gravity by which the Messiah is giving when your faith is properly founded. And a lot of people don't understand or they can't envision what that foundation actually looks like. And with my intention with this verse, text, it allowed me to segue into this second sermon, which is the internal and external challenges you will receive within your faith. So, with this being stated, if someone could come to me and say, Pastor, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he is the God-man. He died, was buried, resurrected on the third day, and he is sitting on the right hand of God the Father. I will say in return, very good. You have more theology than 95% of North America. But nonetheless, I want you to also understand that scripture wants you to be cautious, for the work is not done. We are still fallen creatures, and we must continue to live on this earth. For we have not received our glorified bodies as the, prom the Messiah promised. So then, the question will then be prompted from me to them. How must you live? And with this aspect, how has your faith been challenged? And remember going back to my title, Who is Doing the Challenging? This is not an easy point to discuss, and I want to reiterate that. Why? Because we live in this day and age. We go about doing the things that we normally do. Wake up, and depending on your vocation, you go to work, or you uh, housekeep the home. But nevertheless, Every day, obstacles and or challenges are at your forefront. And depending on your decision-making and your wisdom, you can decide to take whichever route within the crossroads. And so with this, I say, when then the crossroad that you approach Maybe something so novel as having a conversation with a friend of yours. If a subject was being broached, and at that point within the subject, you had to make a determination, do I violate the law of God or do I keep it? That is where I am coming from. Now, I want you to understand the gaze of where we're looking at this. I want you to see the gaze as, I, as I'm starting the first point through the summation of the two tablets, the summation of the law. Because you must understand, and Jason was bringing this up in regards to how to understand the relationship between the church as being regenerate people to the moral law. The moral law has uses. It has useless uses <laughs> to both the regenerate man and the unregenerate man. 
Our master tells us in Matthew 22, 37 through 41, after a lawyer tested him by a question, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So the Messiah answered in kind, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on verse 40, upon these two commandments, saying all the law and the prophets. Now, being that we can already see that the lawyer, <laughs> given his use of the question to be the unregenerate man, how is the moral law of use to him? Well, the moral law, and let's note how the Messiah answered. He did not point one from the Decalogue that was greater than the other. He showed the summation and the proper understanding of how it's supposed to apply. But because of your state, and I mean your state, whether you are a humanist or a Christian, the way the law is viewed has is proper place. You see, to the unchristian man, the law is to awaken their conscience to flee from the wrath to come and to drive them to Christ. You can see that with the way the Messiah answered the lawyer's question. Rather than picking one, he gave them summation to understand that if you know how to love your God, you will then know how to love your fellow man. But it also is another point that is brought to the unregenerate man. It's another point to say it also shows that they are continually in sin, that they're left with no excuse, and they still carry the burden that is the curse of it. Galatians 3 verse 10, as we heard today, for all who are for all who are of works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. So, if that were to be the case, consider back to that example I gave about that conversation. And any conversation you may have had with someone who's not a Christian, you got to make a decision. Do I continue to help and pushing whatever it is that they're trying to get to? Or do you become a salt and an affront and state something that will not only show your position in Christ, but also give context to show them that you know what your theology and or ideology is heading you down a path you may not want to continue and because of the participation that they have in sin and the external challenges that they bring to the church we must understand then, when you answer and properly approach any challenge that can be brought over externally, 
we want to see that the moral law also has this use. Why do I say that? Because unlike the humanists, the moral law and its use for the church is to show them how much more they are bounded to Christ because he was the only one who was able to fulfill it. And he endured the curse that came in their steed and for their good. I bring to you first Romans 7, 24, 25. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, my flesh, the law of sin. Romans 8, 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So then at every turn that you have an external challenge, think your reverence for the moral law is not like the reading and thinking a humanist would have when they approach it. You with the work of the Spirit in your heart have been changed to do what is right in the sight of your Lord. And because of every external challenge, you should not be discouraged. You should be encouraged to embrace it. Because if you do, even if it seems like you cannot beat the argument, can you come back with the resolve that my faith will grow because I stood tall and made the defense. And you have people like the ministers here who can assist you in making that defense. Hey, I bring to you this. Not only that, think about it. You will be more thankful after coming back and challenging and conquering that external challenge. And in that so, you will express a greater care to conform, conform to the moral law because you see the benefits that it comes with having obedience. Romans 7.22, For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person. So that was easy, right? That external challenge didn't seem so difficult. So what if you are in the faith? And I'll give you some examples, especially in this day and age, because now the complexity is some of them are starting to muddy the waters. So an example, and I say it more because it's going to be relative to our modern cultural day here in the States. A man would notice that another man was treated unfairly. Here are some examples you may have heard and or seen and or uh, talked about amongst your friends. A man was beaten to the point of death by a citizen or by a sojourner 
or by an authoritative figure. A man was violated by having his belongings pillaged and or destroyed. He had his significant other hate him with so much malice, she committed infidelity. And it's not gender neutral either. He had a good name and it was tarnished upon repair because of her accusations. You must always believe the victim. And lastly, by jealousy, because his life was envied, resented, he had to go through extraordinary means to protect his livelihood. Now, without putting any titles, I think everybody can associate one or one kind of quote-unquote hashtag that you may have seen with a lot of these examples. And they float among. They be raised by various people because they feel that they have a point to make because they have been so emotionally and passionately driven to say something, but not realizing the consequences of their statements. Do they realize they failed the challenge? How? How did they fail the challenge? They were being empathetic. But the means by which they want to express their empathy violate the law of God. And we as a church should not fall into that pitfall. Because with all their answers, they show their lack of love and their hate of God. And the reason why I can't put any names is because this is nothing new. We're seeing it today because the media wants to drive a narrative. So they want to push certain pictures, certain stories. But this has transpired since the dawn of time. Where were they when all this happened? Why don't we hear about various things that happened back in the 1600s? Wow, I can even go further. Back and during the Roman time period. Oh, I can even go further. Back during the Babylonian captivity. I can go even further. Back and when the Egyptians took over Israel. I can even go any further. You see, it's nothing new. All this I'm stating here is nothing new. And even when we heard the word of God being extolled and read today, we saw this in 2 Samuel. Here was a clear violation. It was an external challenge. And yet, without having, <laughs> without having a proper understanding of the moral law, they fell in that crossroad. They either had the moral law become that use where you are a humanist, or if you were to do right and had your foundation set in Christ, the moral law will be of special use to you because you are in the church. Well, with that being stated, we know, as our Messiah eloquently put, not acting on the words of mine. You are a foolish man. He reiterated this back from the Psalms, as he stated in Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God 
and the complexity is as such. A man who states, now come everyone, let us show to the world that there is no God. At every turn, they will discourage the man who gives his apologetic. And to the point, they're troubled. They're dejected. The people will mock and scoff at them. Psalms 3, 1 through 2. I'll read verse number 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. This is the wind. This is the rain. This is the flood that the Messiah is talking about. And I'm showing you, I'm telling you that these challenges are here. And he tells you that they will come. But again, your foundation must be set in upon him. But I'm going to even get even deeper down the rabbit hole. Let's skew away the external challenges and let's look in the inside. Are you fighting sin? Because if you're not, you want to see something funny? When you're not fighting sin, you are now the new external challenges to someone who's trying to fight it. It comes back full circle. It's kind of scary now, isn't it? I mean, think about this. When you could have prevented sin from taking full advantage of your life, you decided, you decided to not fight it. Lean and feed your temptations and therefore bring someone else into your fall. Did not we read this in 2 Samuel today? Did we not also learn with David and his violation with Bathsheba? I want this to be analyzed even closely because when we don't fight sin in our own life, when we don't conquer that internal challenge and we succumb to it, we are the fool that the Messiah is speaking of in Matthew 7, 26. Proverbs 1 says, we are the fool that despises wisdom and instruction. Isaiah 59 verse 7 states, we are the ones that run to evil. We hurry to shed innocent blood. Our thoughts are thoughts of wrongdoing and destruction is in our past. Solomon warns of those people in Proverbs 1, 10 through 14. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our house with plunder. See, this is a difficult point to bring up because we run amiss not thinking, well, the external challenge is easy to conquer, but the internal challenge is something we sometimes fail to realize within ourselves. And not one person here can say they were not eternally 
internally challenged. You can't. You're still in sin in regards to the fact that you were born in sin. You still have that remnant of sin at which the spirit is fighting. And I beg you this question, and obviously you can't answer it, but I beg you this question because it's going to lead us to our next point. When you do come to that internal challenge, how do you overcome it? Do you wallow? Do you kick it down the road? Do you just think it's going to pass by? This is not an easy point to convey, but it must be said. Because again, your approach is going to strengthen your faith. But if your approach is not properly grounded, then you're still in your sins. I can't sugarcoat it. So leading on to point number two, how do you overcome? How do you overcome the external challenges? How do you overcome the internal challenges? The Messiah gave you the answer. In Matthew 7, 24, everyone who hear these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The first two clauses, everyone who hears the words of mine and acts on them. It is expected that there is an action of obedience on your part. James 2, 14, 18. What use is it, my brothers and sisters? If someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith really save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and no one says to him, and one says to him, "Go in peace and be warm and be filled," yet you do not give him what is necessary for their body, what use is that? So, in the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, "You have faith, and I have works." Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And your works entails a whole spectrum of things, from the way you carry your conversations, to the way you handle your family affairs, to the way you deal with people at work, to the way you convey yourself on social media if you're on that platform, which I am not. But just to let you know, your works must be also included in how you handle social media. And so your actions and your behaviors must exhibit, first and foremost, obedience. Now, someone will say, well, I don't know about that. All I have to do, according to Romans 10, verse 9, and they will quote it by verbatim, if I confess in my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, I will be saved. I told you I brought that up earlier, right? Well, James tells us to be cautious, but he also states, you know, there's those who believe that God is one. He stated 
This is in verse 19. You do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. So, so much for your belief system, right? Again, you know, if they want to quote verse 9, let me give you verse 10. Because verse 10 brings it even into more context. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. You know that word resulting in righteousness has to stem from an action of standpoint. And when someone actually assents to a belief, they actually result in an action of that belief. Why would I say that? Let's bring it back to James 2, 21 through 24. James states, Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working in his works. And as a result of the works, the faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So for those who wants to understand and how I would approach this person, I want to let them know, you know, that story of Abraham was stated in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, where God spake and commanded Abraham. And verses, in that same chapter, verses 4 to 12, Abraham obeys and does what is commanded of God. And note what God does in rewarding Abraham. In verse 22, I'm sorry, in verse 15 through 19, Abraham is rewarded and blessed for his obedience. So the point I'm trying to draw to you is that it must first come with obedience. Any challenge you face, whether externally or internally from sin, you must first obey God. And it seems weird to say that. Because not a lot of people understand what does obedience actually entails. Some thinks I'm just a robot. And that if God said jump, I just jump. If God said how high, if he tells me to jump five feet, I jump five feet. Well, yes, that is true. But in, in regards to the context of the obedience, there is obedience within reason and when i say within reason i'm not saying that all the parents should go like abraham and try to sacrifice their children you see that wasn't your command see you get these kind of conversations because they try they try in the little game to say like you know i'm gonna find a find a loophole in this you know, it's only in the New Testament we believe, not the Old. But for you to grow in your faith, you want to see the harmony of the Old to the New. So with this obedience, I mean it in regards, and especially in context, with the way that God tells us to approach life. We have the Messiah and the Beatitudes, and he explains, and he goes into detail about how this law can be violated. I'll go even a step further than that. You have ministers you, who actually take time to study this. 
There's a cell phone. They actually exist in the western part of the hemisphere of the world. So they're only one phone call away from conveying and explaining biblical truths. There should be no excuse for your lack of obedience. But I'll even give you this. How is your prayer life? Are you asking God to give you newfound hope? to give you new obedience? Are you being honest and saying in your sayings with the Father? Because remember, if he's willing, he would allow it. And if you know his will, how then when you ask for something that he's willing to do, you don't ask for it in your prayers. So now, again, if your foundation is not set on Christ, those external and internal challenges look like mountains. The second point I want to bring in how to overcome these challenges is thinking through the means of grace. Because a lot of people don't understand what they've been afforded to in the church. By the means of grace, I mean what the Lord has given, especially with grace being abounded, to the church in order for it to grow and for the kingdom to expand. First, we have church discipline. Be part of a local church. You want to overcome these external challenges? You want to conquer sin in your life? Be a part of a local church. Now, I recommend a Reformed church, particularly Presbyterian and the RPCGA, but, you know, we only have so many churches that are scattered in the states and you may not be able to go to them. But a Reformed church is a good one nonetheless. So show your submission to the officers of the church because they will be expecting some sort of show of works on your behalf. One, it's great that you're here today. That is huge because you could be anywhere else, especially during different times of the year, a lot of people like to schedule their church times around football season. So now you can see where their God actually lies. Now, you can do it responsibly, of course. I'm not saying you, can, you can't do that, but obviously some of them will just forsake church just to partake in a football game. But yes, your attendance to your local church shows your faithful work. And you sitting down, notice how this is going to go down the rabbit hole here. You sitting down and taking part, do you realize even fully the means of grace becoming realized? Because the second means is hearing the preaching of the word. How can you expect to combat your external and internal challenges if you are not challenged even here from the pulpit? When you leave, are you a different person? And I mean by a different person, has your... Has your thought process, has it been renewed? Have you learned something that you can carry out and carry out throughout the week, that you can meditate on it? Now, granted, we do have our sermons and catechism lessons that are on audio and video, so you can play them as much as you want. But nonetheless, some of the key words and terms, because believe it or not, they say the attention span for those sitting down, they only get the first 10 minutes, so you try to say as much as you can. But the Spirit is at work. The Spirit is at hand when someone preaches from this pulpit. 
So as Jesus said in John 3, verse 8, I don't know where the wind is going and how it blows, but I do know when the Spirit is at work, it will allow your heart and your mind to receive the truth of God. So think about this and consider that sitting here and taking under the preaching, have you been changed? Are you a new person? And then lastly, the giving of the sacraments. Think with each administration of the Lord's Supper, has your faith been renewed? We give the exaltation to go and consider your life before coming to the table so that day by day you think about all the crossroads you had and all the challenges you received. Did you apply the word of God to your life? Do you come with a newfound reason and hope to say, yes, I am a Christian and my assurance is growing. So lastly, to bring this all together into a close, when you find newfound obedience in God, and realizing what the means of grace entails and how it realized. Accept your challenges with confidence now. Anytime someone is coming to you, I'm not asking for you to go out there and create your obstacles. What I'm saying is when they are brought to you, take them with confidence. Knowing that you've been girded with the word knowing that you heard the word being preached and you apply it to your life or see how it can be applied to your life. I bring you Hebrews 12, one through three, with Jesus being the example and knowing, just knowing why he said he is the foundation why he said, if you do those words that I've commanded you, you will have a solid foundation. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Note verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's amazing. When you listen to the Messiah, he makes your life a little bit easier. It's amazing. When you listen to the Messiah, 
All those obstacles don't seem like obstacles. And as I said, I'm going to bring this to a close. Given our cultural and current climates, we do expect plenty of obstacles. And like I said, um, there's too many to name. And for the sake of not bringing any unwanted attention, I do not need to name them. But nonetheless, nonetheless, you have the word to declare what is sinful. And particularly when you have the challenges, both external and internal, you also have the means of grace that's been afforded to you so that you are girded to tackle them. So with that being said, you will know that you are at all of this if you practice and heed the words of the Lord, take upon the means of grace that he's afforded you. After this, you will notice you are sensitized to sin. At every affront, you are sensitized because then you just don't want to offend God. And because of that newfound feeling, you will be amazed at how much your faith will grow and you'll be amazed at that full assurance or that knowledge of full assurance that you will continually and continually to uh, expand. So with that being said, we do have one more sermon within this series. And note our scripture text, 2 Peter 1, 10 through 11. I chose this so that at my last sermon, I can give you the full summary of what I just extolled. Because remember, our foundation must be set. We must know the challenges that were ahead. We must know how to overcome those challenges. Why? Because note here in verse 11, for in this way, the entrance into the internal kingdom of our Lord and Jesus, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. In Hebrews 12, endure the race set before you. Let us know and be knowledge, or I'm sorry, let us know and have knowledge of what that race actually entails. So when I come back, we will summarize it properly and we will close. And my hope is that your faith will grow and in your faith growing, your assurance will also grow. And you have more appreciation of your standing with Christ. Let's look to the Lord God in prayer.